everybody, and welcome to another episode of Movie Mumble, your monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast where we seek to broaden our cinematic horizons. I'm your host, Scott Murray, and uh, this is our first normal episode that's on Zoom. So if you missed the special episode, uh, okay, if you missed the special episode <laughs> that was on Zoom. We don't then, do that uh, during Zoom. We tried it. It doesn't what? work. <laughs> you didn't do it. <laughs> Oh, fine. I was waiting for you to say oh, regular. I was, I was waiting for this. That's why we I don't know where my mic is. <laughs> I said normal, I said special. What do you want? No, it's regular. Uh, regular is the key. Mumble is a monthly uh, regular. Regular, all right. I'll know to never say that then. Thank you. <laughs> movie Mumble is a monthly movie podcast, movie discussion podcast, where four friends take turns picking a film, watching it together, and then talking about it. Uh, although we didn't get to watch together this time because of the whole uh, COVID-19 situation. We did watch almost at the same time, and the, the spirit of the podcast remains largely unchanged. Uh, I'm joined by my romantic artist friends of which i think you are all at least one of those things joel lewis howdy tim gerard hello and zeke perez bonjour <laughs> ah okay Brilliant. we're already beginning it's great french is the thing <laughs> yes yes so. uh we all take turns picking a film and watching it together and talking about it like i said there are no rules about what we can pick uh, it can be literally anything at all, as long as we can justify it being a film and we can all get our hands on a copy to watch. And then uh, every month we announce what we're watching next month, so you can watch along with us if you'd like. And we don't make any efforts to withhold spoilers, so if you're worried about that, please watch the film before you listen to its episode. Uh, this month, in so much as we still have regular time in this world of inside homes, uh, Joel was our movie selector, and Joel brought us Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Joel, do you yep, want to yep. introduce your film? Yeah, for sure. Um, so came out in 2019, um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, directed by, I have it in my notes here, Celine Schiama, um, director and writer of Water Lilies in 2007, Tomboy in 2011, and Girlhood in 2014. So this was, this is one of the last movies Tyne and I saw in the theaters before um, Stay at Home was enacted. And... Mm -hmm. It, it was something where it, we'd, we'd been to the Alamo like the week previous and saw the trailer for it and was like, oh my God, we have to see that. And it just, coming out of it, my jaw dropped. I was like, just so floored by it. Just, it's, it's really this, I want to call it a tour de force because that's kind of how it ends in, in, in this, this like huge triumph moment and it, but it's a very smooth soft film that kind of builds in these waves and just just reveals itself more to you like it, it's 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 incredible it's um so it's what is the time period i did try to do some research on this um end of the 18th century yeah says here yeah. yeah so we're looking at like 1790s ish era um this uh woman painter is recruited to um make a portrait for the expectant husband of this mysterious girl and by her mother contracts the portrait out and she arrives and it, there's this mystery around the girl 
And as she shows up, she sees that the previous painter was exhausted by her and has only been able to draw her from the neck down. And it's this huge mystery, this like really spooky Gothic kind of tone that starts it. And it, it Gothic it re- is the word. Yeah. yeah. It really reveals it's to be something other than spooky eventually, but it's kind of set up in, in such a way. So it, it's about kind of the, the transition between these two women from artist and subject to companion and then into lover and kind of this, this really crystallized experience of how art and love and affection kind of culminates in this, this shared space for this snapshot of time before um, Eloise um, has to go off and get married to this guy in Milan. And it, it's just this really intimate exploration of kind of art and music and intimacy and how the dynamic between these two women just evolves through their study of each other and their, their, their um, pursuit of one another in different ways. It's just a really spectacular film. I, me summarizing it kind of bungles it, but it, <laughs> that's, that's kind of the, the main point of it is that artist is contracted to do a portrait, comes, discovers kind of the mysterious circumstances of why this is happening and falls in love with her subject in the way that their subject ends up falling in love with her. And it's just this gorgeous tour de force of writing, of acting, of framing. Like it, it's a, it's a damn near perfect movie. I, I would be very hard pressed to find a flaw with it. Um, so I, I, I came out of this film with the impression that I need to see everything this director has done. I still haven't, I need to. And also she should be the one to direct a film adaptation of Shirley, which is the book I did my master's thesis on because she would nail it. And it's right in this wheelhouse. It's very, very similar. So I kind of coming away from the film and my impression of it is kind of like Dorian Gray meets Jane Eyre. And then you turn the lesbian meter way up. Like that's (laughs) kind of the, the, initial description so that was that was that was mine let's do first impressions (laughs) scott go ahead (laughs) (laughs) yeah i it was fantastic i was immediately interested and i i i don't know i mean it doesn't start particularly slowly but it doesn't start very quickly either and i don't know if it was just because i I sort of had no choice but to finish it or if it was something about the film itself, but it carried me pretty effortlessly through the intro to the first like conversation, which is, I guess, really the, the painter and the, the woman, the mother, mm-hmm. first sort of proper interaction between major players. And I think what it was, looking back, was that it was visually every image, every shot was a painting, but they were all different paintings all in different styles when they were inside at the table lit by fire there was this sort of oily brush ness to it that i've seen in museums you know when they were outside and things were bright and there was grass and sky there was a a more firm i i don't know the terms i don't know art enough to to say what i'm seeing in my head but i've seen all these things on walls in museums before and i saw them again 
recreated on film, but not in that sort of heavy handed way where they get everybody to go stand in a specific spot, just in, in the lighting and the materials that were used, it all just sort of naturally came together to present texture of painting. So even though there were long stretches of silence or even of just solitary characters, it was so, it was such a visual feast, you know, I, I was happy just watching the world go by. And then, you know, as the story unraveled, it did it so well. I, we don't hear our characters' names for quite a while. I, I want to talk no about need. that. The characters no, don't yeah. need to introduce themselves to each other 18 yeah. times when they've already had their names exchanged in writing. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into that too quick because I have a, a kind of theory. Of and the, like, the, I the even, arc. I had notes and I, I was just calling them the painter and the subject and mm -hmm. the mother. Yeah, so I, it, cause it's, it's all just so natural and beautiful. And I love that it. it was amazing. I mean, it's brilliant. I'm probably gonna buy it. I feel like I've read this story before and I've read it like I haven't read the quote unquote original with a man and a woman, but I've read man and man before where the one of them is the not as rich artistic type and they meet and spend a lot of time befriending the richer sort of enigmatic, you know, person who feels adrift in the fate that life is, the currents of fate that life has set them. And then the two of them, as their relationship develops, it flows a lot. And I've seen it in interpretations of Brideshead Revisited, which is interwar, 1920s-ish, 20s and 30s. And I've seen it in this sort of, I, I don't know, like a, like when, when 19, 20th century writers take Byronic pieces and fit them into new settings. I don't, I don't know, I can't pin it down much like the visual art. I don't have the, the vocabulary I need, but it's a story that works for me really well. So when it continued at every step to be that story, I just got happier and happier and liked it more and more. Tim, what about you? First impressions. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> um, it honestly took me a, a little while to, to get into it. Um, I think just because, you know, like when I saw it was like a period film, I, and I just don't tend to like period films in general, but that's just me. That wasn't a criticism of the film. It was just kind of more like, okay, I'm going to have to like get myself into this. Um, but it, it did draw me in. It took, it took a little while, but it did sort of like, I feel like, you know, that's, that's kind of like a, a, a testament to how good it was. The fact that I went into it being like, I don't want to watch a period film. And then like, oh, wait, this is really good. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, like I really started to, I, I really liked a lot of, um, well, first of all, like just how, how fire was used throughout the whole film. Um, all the different ways, you know, and kind of that there was this sense of they, they kind of give you this little morsel, you know, the, the lady on fire. So you're like, <clears throat> okay, like this, you know, you're in, and I was kind of waiting for it the whole time. Like, not that I thought she was going to like literally catch fire. And although then she did, and I was like, oh shit. Okay. But you know, but it's like, you're kind of thinking of like, okay, well, okay. So what's the metaphor for this? What is the situation? What kind of led to that? And, and then just how, um, you know, and then after that first scene, when they introduced the painting, the next thing you see is water, you know? So like, you're just kind of like, oh, you're just kind of thrown into this very like, like contrasting element, this contrasting environment that I was expecting to be in. Um, and, you know, and, and, and kind of her even kind of having to launch herself into the water to then be dried out by the fire later on, you know, it was just kind of this really cool um, 
really cool juxtaposition. Maybe that was the first point where I kind of really started getting drawn in. And it made me sort of, I think, appreciate the, the environment that she was in, you know, because like, okay, here's this old ass castle and you've, you know, I mean, not like actually castle, but that was sort of the, the, the feeling it had, it, you know, because it was this sort of very, very, very old and very, you know, like, yeah, there's no, there are no quote unquote lights, you know, you have candles and fires and, you know, and just how, how that kind of worked. And, you know, and even, even with that, the old, the whole idea of, you know, the, there was the, the fireplace, which was there for like, you know, warmth to kind of dry her off. But then there was the candle that was there for light for her to see. So it was kind of also playing with different aspects of fire, like that it wasn't just about like the destructive nature of fire. So it's like, you know, and, and it was just like, I was just constantly thinking of that throughout the whole thing, like kind of piecing that together and like, okay. And like, you know, and you kind of get this, you know, sense that it's like, oh yeah, you know, she wouldn't sit still. And it's like, okay. So she's kind of this very like, you know, fiery personality, but then it kind of wasn't even that, like she was really subdued. So that kind of also drew me in like, well, okay, where's the fire come in? And um, so anyway, that was kind of the, one of the main themes I was really watching all the way through to kind of see how that would play out. Um, and, uh, you know, and even how it had to do with, uh, you know, uh, you know, an extension of that, like the, the aspect of natural light, like the part where, you know, she's talking to the mother and she's like, you know, we go for our walks too late. By the time we get back, there's no light. So I can't paint, you know? So it's kind of like, okay, so now, you know, the fire kind of as this substitute for, for, you know, natural light and, you know, you know, true light as it's sometimes referred to, you know, it, it, okay. It's not, a, it's, it, it doesn't fill the job. You know, she can't just light a fire and paint by the fire. It has to be like sunlight or anything. Um, so that part of it was really cool. That was sort of one level that I was really enjoying it on. Um, and then the, 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 you know, even like the surface level, like really kind of drew me in after a while too, where it was kind of like, you know, watching the, the interaction between people. And, you know, once you kind of, uh, I, I feel like it, it, it took until the point where they actually introduced the, you know, the Scott would say the subject, you know, again, I forget what her name is, but, okay. but, yeah, Louise, yeah. So when they kind of introduce her, like, I think that's when I started being more engaged with the characters, like as people, which I guess is part of the point, because here's like this, that, yeah, there's this nameless painter, this mother that, you know, it's like, you're not really, they're not really people yet, I guess, you know, and then when you kind of get to these, these two people where it's like, okay, you're the point of why you're here, in a sense, is to get to know her, you know, so that becomes like the, you know, the, 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 the journey at that point. Um, and, um, yeah. So, and so wait, right now I just want to be clear before I kind of, you know, reveal everything. Um, we're saving sort of favorite moments till later. Right. Cause I had, I had a few favorite moments in this, so I won't mention those now since this is just the overall kind of sense of the, of the movie. So, yeah. so yeah, so, so by the end of it, I definitely was drawn in. I was definitely like, yeah, like this, this is, this works, you know, and, um, this was, it, yeah, it was definitely, you know, a, a, a perfect movie mumble film where it's something I wouldn't have seen on my own, but like, I'm, I'm glad I was told to watch it. And, and my wife actually ended up watching it with me too, like towards the end, you know, she came in partway through I and I actually needed, yeah. And I, I actually needed her to explain part of it to me, which I'll get into later. Um, you know, cause I was just kind of like, yeah, I didn't really get this part. And then she kind of laid it down. I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense now. <laughs> so, um, uh, but yeah. And then the one thing I thought of too, and again, this isn't, and maybe, you know, maybe you have insight to this. Um, 
but part of me, and again, this is my own kind of feeling, not a criticism of it, was that I felt kind of like I wanted to see the Lady on Fire painting being painted at some point. That was the thing I kept expecting to see. And I, and I get why they didn't do it. You know, you, you know it's at some point when after they're kind of separated again and, you know, and it's her kind of like, you know, like longing for her and, you know, and you, you never really clear what point she paints it. Is it before or after she goes to that show at the end? Or, or maybe that's where that was shown i'm not sure um but yeah like part of me was kind of like expecting that as the climactic moment you know and especially like when we find out at the beginning she has two canvases and she's commissioned to do the thing and i was like oh that's what the other canvas is going to be but then she like fucks up the first one and that oh that's what the second canvas is for so so what about the lady on fire painting what does she do that with so so that was something that kind of got stuck in my head um and, and again, like, you know, it, it, it didn't need to be shown, but like, I, um, I think especially because like when they show it at the beginning, I'm like, like, that's incredible, you know? And then all the other paintings you see throughout are just kind of, you know, standard, you know, portraits of that time period, you know, kind of with no, no real sense of like, um, you know, uh, a creative expression, you know, it's just kind of like, well, here's a portrait, you draw this person like a better version of themselves, you know, kind of like your social media profiles, you know, like, oh, make it sound like me, but cool, you know, make this look like me, but good looking, you know, or whatever, you know. Um, so it was, it was just so cool. It was so cool to see that. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to see that come into being, you know, and, and again, like I said, I, I, I get it. I can see the reasons why I'm not doing it, but um, when, when the movie was done, I was like, wait, that's it? Like, what about the thing? I want to see this. I want to see her do the thing, you know? <laughs> and the, the way that that painting enters into the film is so dramatic because uh, mm -hmm. Marianne is sitting for her students and describing what they should be painting in what order. And she stops and there's this coldness in her voice and she goes, what's that painting doing out? And you don't see it, it's in the background and it kind of slowly comes into the foreground as, as she's talking about it. And it, it like, it just, it's so cool. Like that, that painting is amazing. The way it's introduced is amazing. How it sets a tone for the film and yeah. kind of this expectation. Cause like you, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping in out of order. I just wanted, I okay. just was really lighting a fire under my ass about it. But the idea that like, once you know that that's the subject of the film, in quotation marks, you keep looking for the fires and their fires keep showing up and in precarious situations. There's so many times Marianne's like, like in the fireplace stoking it. And it's like, is this where the fire comes? Is she the lady on fire? Like th that just sets such a, it's almost like a whodunit. Like the idea that there's this expectation that a woman will be set on fire in and even what circumstances right before that, happen? that happens, the actual fiery part happens, Eloise walks behind the fire and you get almost a more perfect image yep. of the picture yeah. when she's not on fire. She's just on the far side of it. And so there's a moment of, oh, is this the painting? And then she steps away and is on fire. <laughs> and you're like, oh, no, there it is. I also wanted to say real quick, Tim, when you were talking about uh, Eloise kind of having a fiery personality and then not, I wrote down smoldering Eloise. The idea that she's got this anger in her, this righteous anger about having been shackled to this man who was going to marry her sister and she can't, she doesn't smile. She can't smile because she's always angry. 
and it, there's that little she's she's got a little bit of Bruce Banner underneath like this, this <laughs> yeah. fiery anger so I just had made that association with what you had said but yeah yeah Zeke say things now <laughs> sounds good um yeah I think echoing a lot but then there there are some differences for me too but um yeah i think you know when scott talked about each scene kind of being a portrait i think that's some that's the same exact thought i had just every scene was beautiful um everything stood out i really liked the scenes where they just lingered and there was no dialogue and you're just sitting there watching a person or a setting or something happen for you know almost an uncomfortable amount of time and just soaking it in um i really like that and i just felt like it fit the theme of the movie um and it, yeah it was just a beautiful one i think um, uh, one of the, I, I've never felt more cultured than at the beginning when she's, uh, making it to, um, the castle or whatever. And, uh, the, you know, the boat's passing by one of the big like cliff arches. Um, and we got to see the Monet exhibit when it was at the Denver art museum. And that looked like he had a series of paintings where he would paint the same, um, cliff arch from different angles and at different times of day. And it was like, wow, I, that looks familiar. And I, you know, I'm sure, I don't know if it was intentional. I don't even know if it's the same location, but I've never felt more cultured than an art reference in a French film. And <laughs> that. So that was nice. Um, I think some of the things that were different though, I, I, you know, I don't think it was a slow starter for me. I think um, Joel, you started talking about this, but when she's narrating uh, or, or instructing the class, I think I was hooked right away from there because she's talking about, uh, you know, she, she's caught off guard by seeing the picture there and then her instructions on, you know, start with the silhouette and then move on to the hands. Like all of that is brought back in um, as you go throughout the movie, just kind of interspliced in here and there. And um, so I was, you know, that sort of dialogue there hooked me from the beginning. Um, I also don't think I was too caught up in the, um, you know, wondering about the portrait of lady, the lady on fire. Cause I, you know, that's something they kind of said right off the bat, I think within the first couple of minutes. And I jokingly said out loud was like, and roll credits <laughs> <laughs> out loud very quickly. So, you know, I, I, I don't know when she, uh, at the, at the feast, when she catches on fire, I was like, Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, it wasn't really something that was sticking in my head. Um, so yeah, I think those are my thoughts based on, uh, things you all touched on. I think, um, overall I loved it. I think, um, the costume design is something else I loved. And, and Scott, to your point about not having the words to describe it, like I don't know costume design or art or fashion enough to describe it, but I just thought that, um, you know, the way Marianne's costumes, uh, uh, you know, contrasted with Eloise's, I thought there was a lot to be said there. I just thought it was visually stunning in every shot. And there weren't that many costumes, but the way they used them... Um, I don't know. It was pretty amazing. So just, yeah, a portrait of a movie for sure. It's one I want to rewatch because I think that the limited dialogue that was there was just very powerful. And I think uh, I want to go back and hear it. And, and I think there are certain things that if you hear it again, knowing how it unfolds, that they're just going to be that much more powerful. Um, yeah. And I mean, there are some other things I do want to talk about too, but I, same as Tim, I want to save those for, for later on. So I think that's my overall uh, feel for it. Sweet. I'm very pleased. Like I was very worried about bringing this one because I, I honestly, I think the film, it definitely speaks for itself. It is a powerful, powerful film. 
And sometimes I worry that I, I bring these low, slow slogging, long shot things, and you, you guys are like, what is, what is happening? <laughs> so I, I was, I'm very pleased to, to hear that everybody liked it. Um, I want to go last for my favorite scene. Um, I, I feel like some of us will have the same favorite scene, but I'm not sure. So, mm-hmm. Scott, what I have was... three. Okay. <laughs> I tried to limit to one, but I'll probably eke out to one and a half or two. So maybe, maybe I'll go second to last then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that I don't say all. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, Scott. An ultimate him. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have two, I guess, and it's because one of them is sort of... It's none, of, none of them are from the meat of the film. And that's not because there's nothing in the, the meat of the film that, that struck me, but that it was just all so consistently excellent and flowed so naturally from one thing to the next that there's no peak for me. Um, like no, no sudden particular peak that stands out amongst the rest of the middle of the film. The two are the end, the very, very end. Because, of, I mean, that's how you end a movie. Good God. Just... When, when they talk about a character emoting, it's just, fucking just her clinic. face. It's just like twenty seconds of her face moving from emotion to flawless. And the music was full and powerful. There wasn't a whole lot of sound in this movie, but every moment, every decibel of sound was designed it, with everything in mind. There's a moment where Marianne sits on a bed and pulls a thick sheet of parchment out from a, the pages of a book do a sketch i had to back that up and listen again that was so perfect i just so the, the end you know the music and but i i almost feel like that doesn't quite stand on its own merits i mean it does but because of all these four seasons which is the music they're using there was something i listened to a lot when i was very little so it holds a lot of deep personal connections and i can't separate it from my life enough to tell you whether that would still be my favorite moment if I didn't have that connection or not. So in the interest of picking something else that doesn't have (laughs) such a bias, it's when she stands on the edge of the boat at the very beginning before she jumps in. And it's because I I mentioned that I was sort of like alone for the ride until she spoke to the mother and then I was in. But the more I watched, the more I appreciated what came before. And the camera in this film is this whole film is, 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 it's, it's, it is to feel, not to see. And it, it's all to feel what Marianne feels. And the film, the camera always focuses either on Marianne's face so that we can see what she's feeling by seeing her facial expressions, or it focuses on a part of her body that's touching something so we can feel what she's feeling literally, or it focuses on the thing she's looking at so that we can see where her focus is. And does that throughout the entire film. And that moment of foot on edge of boat, you know, when we're not even seeing her head or her face or her looking out at the crate or the ocean or whatever, we're just focused on that little tilt of the arch of her foot on the edge because that was where her focus was as she adjusts her balance to dive into the water. That was like the moment that everything kind of came together underneath for me visually. So I love that's that moment my... so much because it reveals so much about her character. There's no, it's not even a consideration. She's going after her art supplies. Mm-hmm. Like that is her vocation is everything to her. This is not someone who is going to bulk at getting dirty to do the thing that she's built to do. It just like such like 
such an intensity to that. Sorry. No, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's it. So I, I would like to say that the end would still be my favorite, even without my, my love of the four seasons, but again, I can't separate myself from that enough. So you get two. So there you go. <laughs> I'll go ahead and say the end is my, is, is my favorite too. One of the things I wrote down in my notes is I think the last like five minutes of the movie can be a movie uh, on its own, just, you know, with her going through the art show and then her seeing um, Eloise at the orchestra and just, you know, we already talked about just her emoting and just going through the whole roller coaster of, you know, sadness and then she's smiling and she's angry, just all of the, all of the emotions. I just think that alone, right. If you just showed me that five minutes, that still would have captured some emotion. Um, so that's got to be there. I think though, um, like favorite, you know, just happiness, jaw dropping favorite moment was uh, at the art show when she sees the portrait of Eloise and her daughter and notices the book that Eloise is holding and it zooms in on the page 28. That hit me. So yeah, that's, that's uh, a winner for sure. And then I guess if I can, if I can go with another one, um, back to the feast, the acapella group, man, their song was fire. That was another favorite for me. That was a, that was a good song. Yeah. Jam now. (laughs) That dissonance at the beginning of that, the, the note I took down was, when did this become a horror film? Right. But then as they all step together and their voices resolve, it was just like, oh, that's so beautiful. It was the THX thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. See, this film never quite gives up on that gothic creepiness, that like mystery to it. And it, when it goes into that drone, it's just so eerie. It's like, oh God, what's, what's going to go wrong? And then it realizes so beautifully it just becomes this massive tour de force of sound it's so good sorry and watching the trailer even back to the the creepy gothic just always there presence um when she first when marianne first goes to see eloise and she comes down the stairs and it's just the back of a dark cloak at the bottom of a dark staircase Mm -hmm. like okay this is going to be a very different movie than i thought and then you get through the trailer and it's like okay this is you know, it's not a horror film. And then, but then watching the movie again, I did the same thing. I was like, wow, this is creepy. So there's just always that. Yeah. Like you said, it never gives up on maybe the potential of scaring me, but. <laughs> okay. So my turn now. Are you done? Z? Yeah. Okay. So, so, so yeah, like, as I suspected, like, that's why I didn't want to go first and sort of, you know, kind of steal everyone's favorites because yes, the page 28 was one of my favorites. Um, I also like the, the, the right before that, the moment of like, through the whole film, except for the, you know, the beginning when she's on the boat, it's just women. And then it's a room full of dudes. It was just like, here's a sausage party. It was just like, Oh God. Like, even for me, it was like jolting, you know, it's just like, Oh God. Like, Oh, so it's like, you, it really puts you in her frame of mind of just like, Oh God, get me away from all these. And then, um, so yeah. So like then, you know, obviously the page 28, I was just like, Oh, that's so great. Um, and then also the, the, the ending, but, but part of why I love the ending again, like kind of, you know, music nerd film scoring brain is because that was the tune she played to her on the harpsichord earlier yep. was i believe it's summer right scott i think it's yeah, summer it's, from the four it's, seasons it's yeah the storm it's like the summer storm or yeah. spring one or the other yeah it's not spring because that's the one that, okay. that that everybody knows that's you know but i yeah i always get summer and winter confused because i think they're both minor but yeah so i think it's the summer storm but anyway it's the same one that she plays on the harpsichord and i was just like oh yeah that's what she played to her earlier so like how fitting it was that both of them arrived at this, the, the same performance, you know, and, and, and whether or not she was conscious of like, Oh, I want to go see this concert because that's what she played for me. Like, I feel like she, she 
didn't know, you know, but like how from an from an artistic and storytelling point of view, how, how perfect it was that it wasn't just any concert. It was that piece of music that she kind of played. And yeah, again, one of the other few examples of music in the whole film and how that like tied it together with the end. Um, so then my other third favorite thing, and this, this Joel is probably one of yours, was the, 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 the Orpheus reference at the end when she's leaning and leaving, she tells her to turn around so that she can make the poetic choice over the, uh, what did she say? The, uh, the, the uh, romantic choice. choice, lover's choice. Yeah. And it was just like, cause you know, cause it was one of those things they, they kind of discussed Orpheus, like I feel like a few times. Um, and, and then when that also clicks with that visual representation that she has of her in the white gown and it's just like, yeah, again, the creepiness, like, is, is, is this fucking haunted? Like what's going on here? You know? Um, so, so yeah, that was one of the things where it was just like, why, why is there a ghost showing up? And then you're just like, oh, okay. So that, yeah, that kind of brought all that together. And um, uh, yeah, and, you know, with the story and, you know, how that kind of shaped their perspective going into it and how they kind of, they, they both knew kind of like what, what, the, what that moment meant. You know, this isn't you rescuing me like this is you going on to tell this story as an artist and kind of living without it so that you can tell that story instead of living it and it was just like oh yeah that was great okay got it <laughs> and it was summer tim i've got a timestamp here for you from a youtube video okay mm -hmm. but yeah and that's the one um actually there was a part of that that used to be i don't know what company there was but there was some television company that a show when i used to watch when i was a little kid like that was kind of their little tagline when it showed their their um, their logo at the end it was kind of like the climax of that that introductory section. So that's always stuck in my mind from that. Whenever I hear that, I'm like, oh yeah, this is be watching TV as a little kid. Yeah, I don't like. Everybody mentioned basically my favorites. The 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 idea that those, I mean, the 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 moments with sound really pun resonate because of how powerful that usage is. It's sparing and it's powerful. Mm -hmm. um that moment where eloise says turn around is so and it it comes right back to that gothic mystery like because she's she's running like she can't quite run but she's leaving and you've we've seen the vision of eloise in her wedding dress and then she's there it's there in front of her and then it's mm -hmm. behind her and I mean, watching it this time, I definitely knew it was coming, but it still shocked me the way she says it. And it, it's right behind your head. I mean, speakers are in front of me, but like the way yeah. that sound, the sound of her voice carries is so perfect that there's this like, it's ethereal, it's cosmic. It has that, the, the myth becomes the reality of it. And that I, I, I love that line of the, making the the poet's choice not the lover's choice to remember it as a poetic experience rather than and the idea that she in that exchange the whole orpheus myth reading is so great and what they repeat like every word of that that scene is so well crafted and an illusion in the best sense of the word like so many things rely on text that they quote agnosium and are, are leaning on them. Whereas this, this exploration that they have of the themes of that story and how there's the idea that I wrote it down. I can't remember quite. Well, just the idea that like, what if is, is it Persephone and Orpheus? I can't remember the. Uh, Euripides. 
you're, yeah, yeah. Euripides-ish. Euripides, however you say that. An analog. What if it was her who said, look back? Yeah. And having been dead and knowing what it would mean to be dragging literally the baggage of the deceased into the real world. Like the idea, it, it just explores those themes so well and pays them off with dividends when we get to see that moment. And then it, it, that's like a three-point move. It was like that discussion when she's leaving and then to see her rendition of that moment and to hear yeah. the other artists talk about, or the curator, I can't remember if he's an artist or not. Artist, curator, uh, customer, buyer. But him yeah. talking about usually it's before the turn. And or after he's saying goodbye at mm-hmm. this moment, and it's just it's it's brilliant. It, it's that the movement between those three is just such a powerful sequence. And I mean, the I watching it the second time, I had forgotten when you get to the campfire that that it was coming. And then I was like, oh, oh, it's coming as soon as the 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 sound started. As like, oh, it's gonna pay off. So and like. That moment is so ethereal and creepy and just otherworldly and really grounded too. this idea that like music in this un, unexpected place was just that that blew my mind the first time. And to, to talk Ignazium again about something else you guys have already talked about that final scene, that is one of the best performances of anything ever anywhere. Like, and it's so helped by the fact that it is the same piece that Marianne plays yeah. her before. And the, I, like, I, I sure I've heard that song before, but never with the context of knowing it's about a storm. It's always been like, it's not something I've been aware of listening to that is with all these four seasons. It's exploring these things. Whereas when she talks about it being, is it, is it a happy song? No, but it's lively. That, that just yeah. puts a tone on it. And then the idea of it, it's a coming storm and the way she plays it. And that moment is so great because Marianne spends so much of the movie chasing a smile, trying to get a smile from Eloise. And in that moment, as she's messing up, trying to play it, she's so focused on the harpsichord, you don't, she doesn't get to see Eloise smile. And we see it bloom on her face and you, you're just like, she's been playing this cat and mouse. There's so many like near, near visions of her face. There's like literal obscura with the, the mask there. They've got quarantine fashion sense. The idea like uh, Marianne's worse cause she doesn't cover her nose, but the idea that like we get so much deliberate obscuring of her face and there's just such a vulnerable moment where Marianne's trying to play and we get that smile and we get to see it before Marianne ever gets to. And we see that like, it's worth waiting for when she gets it, it's going to be amazing. And when we see the final product of the portrait, knowing what Marianne's capable of, it's just going to just, and that's the thing you get every part of their story in Eloise's face in that last 30 seconds every up peak and valley there's laughter she's crying it's just so beautiful that's the whole film like such a culmination such a powerful these actresses are incredible like it's yeah it's astounding like nobody has that control over their face i i i have not seen 
the the master mastering of the craft to this extent in anything else i i was just blown away there's so many micro expressions of slight indignation of pain of pride like there's this one moment this is one of my favorite moments where sorry let me look at my notes real quick um oh when they're talking about um posing nude right and marianne's saying that she's not allowed to do men because of it's deliberately holding them back so we don't get any kind of notoriety because men only paint nude men so i do it in secret under false pretenses and the idea that she talks, Eloise asks, what does she say to her models? And as Marianne's telling her, your, you, your complexion's incredible. Uh, you look really good today. Or, and then she says, you're pretty. In Eloise's face is just this beautiful, different quadrants of her face are expressing different emotions. And not in like a Picasso way, but like in this gorgeous she's just reacting to everything that that means. Like she wants that to be how Marianne feels about her, but she's also aware of the fact that it's a manipulation tactic to get the best out of a subject. And then there's the mourning, the loss of her sister and the idea that her sister shackled her to marry this man. Like all of that is compelled in this, this tiny, tiny segment of the film. And it's just breathtaking. I, I'm sorry. I'm I'm getting like <laughs> no, emotional you're, talking. You're about hit the it. nail on the head. You've absolutely hit the nail on the head. There's a it's, moment during the first, the first time that Eloise poses for Mar- Marianne, willingly, and Marianne finishes, you know, setting her up, and then goes over to her canvas, and says, "Look at me," and Eloise does, and that gaze is just filled there. with, it's it's a it's a it's a high beam, you know, headlight, boom. And then the camera cuts back to Marianne to show us her face and what she's feeling. And she's perfectly stock still, except for her mouth. Everything she feels, we see in her mouth. And it's just... And she feels so much in that moment. Yes. It's... oh. It reminds me of a, a phrase that I think was probably originally said not so... Not so seriously, but that I, especially in acting, I find to be very true that the most dangerous part of a person is their mouth. <laughs> and a woman especially. <laughs> but right there, that moment of just, she didn't, you could have stuck that mouth on anything. You could have blue screened it onto a, a, you know, an apple tree and I would have felt what the apple tree was feeling. It was brilliant. Uh, the whole film is like that. Every, there isn't a wasted motion. So I, I really wanted to kind of talk about the depiction of sexuality and nudity and objectification in this film, because there is, in my opinion, and I think this, I mean, there, I've read interviews with the director and the idea that she's always actively resisting the tendency of the male gaze, the male filmmaker who overtly sexualizes his female subjects. And I think this movie does such a great job of, there's not even a hint of that. The idea that nudity is so casual and matter of fact in this film, nothing is overtly sexual in a way that is predatory or uh, seems uncomfortable. The first, we see nudity pretty quickly in this film because we see 
Marianne dry off in front of the fire. And I, I love that moment so much because it's so matter of fact, it's so casual and it's so perfectly framed. Like that's such a cool painting. The idea that she's mm-hmm. out of her wet clothes and smoking a pipe just in front of the, the, the fire. And there's no sexual energy to that moment at all. And it's something that's so refreshing to see. We haven't seen anybody else except the housekeeper. The building she's in is dark and we've seen one room. So we don't know if it's a shack or a mansion or what. And the journey was on not so nice seas that were cold and then up a hill on an empty rocky island. So, I mean, yeah, of course she's drying off. <laughs> what else is there? You know, it, it, the whole scene is built up to so well that it, it, it builds itself out of practicality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Natalie and I watched together and um, we were joking with things like that, right? Like, oh, is this a French film? Just like, in the very matter of fact <laughs> thing, way things were carried out. Um, it was just a, just a very, uh, I guess that's it, just a very matter of fact thing. And so like to talk about it seriously, right? Not just joking about, but like it was refreshing to see just right off the bat, tasteful nudity that was just very practical. And, it, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think that trends pretty well throughout the movie too. That's the thing, like there's always this, this, People talk about tasteful nudity and the American interpretation of that is you're just jerking off to it. Like you're, you're presenting it. It's like reading Playboy for the articles. Like there's, there's this tone to it, but like the Zeke is using it absolutely correctly that that is what it was. And it's also like, there's no, it's matter of fact, there's no hidden meanings. There's no sinister intent to it. It's, and I think, Scott, you were talking about with your, the French films that you had watched in the past. I mean, this is a very French thing. Fran- European the French films are, in general. Yeah, and are then, not ashamed yeah, of specifically. the human body in the same way that Protestant... Just uh, non-American uh, films in almost every other market right. on Earth um, are <laughs> right. not, as, not as sexually, uh, you know, sexually fearful. Yeah. And it's great, like, when we get to the moment where um, Eloise and Marianne are going to have sex for the first time, sound come kind of like it's deathly quiet and all you hear is the breathing of their kissing and then it cuts away and there's no you don't see the act and even calling it an act is is coding it in a specific way but the idea that it's so so much emotion and so much about what was going to transpire was translated in the kiss that came before it. it it just did such a good job of playing with it like there's an idea of the, there's kind of a cheekiness to this because i i mean this the big scene right is the when they're taking drugs and she rubs whatever it is on the inside of her armpit and you have the visual gag the idea that that yeah. is very vaginal like the idea that that is a, a presumed erogenous zone and this idea that like it it's definitely winking at that it's you know, the most visible physical intimacy we see. Right. And there's something I, I wanted to read um, in, in an interview. Uh, Celine, the director, was talking about that specific scene. And she's been wanting to present that, that idea, that visual for a long time. And what she was saying is we were all collaborating on this idea that it was sexy and fun. And also that there was room for you. 
that the thing about the male gaze logic defining women is that you're basically held hostage. You don't have a choice. You can close your eyes, but otherwise the image is giving you an order. How we feel, what arouses us. Sometimes we're held hostage by this because, you know, it works. It's education, it's training. The fact that you could be lost in this image and wandering and have fun with it, that's a journey of sex and that's the idea of sex. I just love that crystallization of it, that the idea that we've all seen sex scenes. We've seen the cues, we've seen the saxophone hit it and we know what's going to happen and it's, it's, it's very determined. And I really like the way she talked about it, that the, it's giving you an order. It's telling you sex is about to happen. We all understand what heteronormative sex is about to happen. And this just was such a refreshing portrayal of that. And it, it, that, that's one of my favorite scenes too. Like, I, I like the whole movie. Like the whole movie is a favorite scene. But I thought the portrayal of after sex and the morning after was, was pretty refreshing too. I think that's something you get in a lot of movies where, um, you know, right after it happens, they're laying in bed and the guy's covered, you know, waist below and then the girl's covered from, you know, neck yep. down basically. And there's always that panic or that tension or whatever. Um, and then this one, right, they're laying in bed together and someone knocks on the door um, and it's just casual, right? They're just there together and that's just what it is. And, and there's no shame and there's um, the way it's shot is not like a shameful or like a tense or like, oh my God, did we just do that? No, it was a very natural, very romantic, um, you know, letdown from, from the build to that part of their relationship. And I thought that was, yeah, just, just a, a, another refreshing take, fit the film, um, yeah. I really liked their first kiss too because so much of the money shot and again male coding the idea of the money shot is a thing but like when characters with tension finally get to have the kiss it's this wild passionate penetrative tongues all uh, everywhere right like that's a culmination whereas this was just such a tender emotive kiss just as indicative as their acting. Like it was just, it was representing how, how important that kiss was without it being this wild tongue, Tom Cruise eats your face type thing, you know? I don't know. No, you're, you're right. I, coming back to what I said earlier about it, the film is trying to, to, to portray feel you know, instead of show, don't tell, this is feel, don't show. And it's using Marianne as our focus. I like that a lot, Scott. Feeling. Everything about this, and I think why there's so much silence, is because it's just, it's about the way your breath catches when you look at the object of your affection in a certain way and the light strikes. It's about the way the heat runs down your spine when they pass too closely to you. Or, you know, all that sort of thing. And all of that was just all of that was portrayed so perfectly throughout the film and every shot and every movement and everything the camera did or didn't show and every, every muscular twitch or, and it's something I've only ever experienced before in writing. I've never experienced this in film before ever. And it just, it, yeah, I felt very literary. I don't know, but that, that has always felt more real life to me, more tallied more closely to my experiences with other people in any kind of physical or romantic sense than the visual portrayal of the things themselves. Is that whether it's holding hands or kissing or whatever it is, just that 
written literary exploration of feel has always tallied more closely. And I finding a film that's done it was just a revelation, mm-hmm. you know. Tim, what do you think of nudity and objectification in this film? Um, I thought one of the scenes that stuck out to me, which I think, like, you know, goes along with, with with what you were saying about how she's purposely trying to not, you know, to to be, you know, kind of anti the male gaze was the one when she wakes up in the middle of the night and you know discovers she has her monthly, you know, and it was like it was like oh yeah, like I feel like you know because that's been a, a I feel like a, a big issue that comes up every now and then where, you know, like on Instagram, it's like you can have in a picture of a woman with her boobs half out and it's fine, but show that there was that picture of the woman who was sleeping and, you know, she had her period and it had like soaked through her sweatpants and Instagram was like, no, no, you can't show that, you know, so that like, you know, objectification women, objectifying women is okay visually, but not if it's going to be the reality of what women are, what they have to go through. So I thought that scene to me was kind of really, like you said, kind of sticking it to men like, oh, look, you know, here she's waking up bottomless. You like that? Well, this is what's going on, you know, and that was the the scene that kind of really stuck out for me in terms of that, you know, because it was very like, not only was it like, oh, she's nude, but she's just sitting there or they're nude, but they, they just had sex. It was like that kind of like, um, you know, the, the harsh reality of, of that, and of, of being a woman and, 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 you know, that comes with nudity and that sort of thing. Um, and yes, yeah, so I thought that was kind of a really, a really cool moment in that sense, you know, so, you know, and so in other words, I guess, you know, we were saying kind of portraying being nude as just sort of a normal nonchalant thing. This went to the other extreme of just like, we're going to take this image of nudity and, you know, show, show it interacting with the thing that men are probably going to be uncomfortable about, you know, not just, you know, cause I feel like even if they're just standing there nude, you know, men can turn that sexual, you know, because that's, that's how they, they might want to portray it or, or see it or process it. But it's like, so to take an image like that of something that, you know, they could be on the verge of seeing it as something sexual, but it's just like, nope, like you're, you're not going to like this, you know, and that, that type of thing. So I thought that was kind of really cool too. And, I'll be honest, that scene when she wakes up, because it was not long after another another ratchet up in the romantic tension, mm-hmm. at first, I couldn't tell whether she was in distress from something physical like that or from like a nightmare or whether she was just consumed with thoughts of Heloise. I couldn't quite tell what it was that was keeping her up in that, that first half of the motion as she sits up. Right. And then as she like finishes setting up and you know, you get more body language, it becomes clearer what was going on. But I, that was totally plausible because they just had that another, you know, another moment of tension between them and had to mm. go off to their separate rooms. So I think the other thing about that moment is it's, it's still in the same tone as the rest of the film. I don't think it's kind of like a, a, a fuck you. I think it, mm-hmm. it comes about just as matter of fact as the rest of the film that like nudity is something that happens menstruation is something that happens and it, it like i think i think you're right tim that there if if a shithead man is watching this like ooh, look at the tits and then like that is definitely going to be the moment where it does have that reverse effect where i think it, it's just tonally very consistent in the, the idea that this is the reality it's it's not the reality to gross out men but like you know what i'm saying like it, it's mm-hmm. it's just presenting it as it is i think that 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 moment is really 
And you and I have talked about this with Kevin Smith's uh, comics, where he insists on every storyline he talks about menstruation. And I, I kind of have an issue with how he deals with it because it's always like a male com- character commenting on what would have influenced a decision. I think it's important that it's there. I think he does it a little clumsily. But like the idea, that, and I just think it's, 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 it's totally uh, consistent for you to have gravitated to that scene based on the conversations we've had before. Sorry. Right. I just thought that, that was very meta, yeah. for, meta joke for me and Tim there. Right. right. Well, I you just, know, and, and yeah, yeah you're, you're right. I don't, I don't think she necessarily did it to, you know, piss Ben off, I guess. No, and I think, like, I think like what you said you know, was valid. I, I totally agree. Like, I, I yeah. just think tonally like it's, it's yeah well it's, you know i was also you know, just thinking of it like like in terms of like if she had also say she had also included breastfeeding in the film right. you know there are people who are for some reason all up in arms against breastfeeding you know and it's again it's a perfectly natural thing but i feel like there's gonna at least be you know again like you were mentioning that she was trying to you know do things counter to what the the male gaze expected or i forget how you worded it but that was at least on her mind so there at least i think had to be some awareness yeah that no, you know like you said if there are those shithead men watching this like this is how they're going to react you know um you know and and you know more so than i guess if if she wasn't aware of the male gaze and i don't know how you would have known that you know other than that she did say that you know so you have that i guess information going into it that she's at least aware of it but but yeah yeah it's not like oh i'm gonna show this natural thing as a fuck you but it's just like yeah like you know that they're it it, it, i guess it's what if you're aware of that it is one of the things that people could get up in arms about and they shouldn't but but they will the whole film is just you know showing us these people and the things that happen to them during the stretch of time focusing on marianne so when that happens it happens and it also serves as a as sort of the the catalyst for the closer relationship between Marianne Heloise and Sophie. Sophie, Sophie the housekeeper, because Sophie's been sitting on the fact that she's pregnant for three months, waiting for the the matron to leave. Mm-hmm. But even then, she's sort of becoming closer with Heloise and Marianne. But like, just in the fact that they're all under the matron's thumb in one way or another, so there's a shared camaraderie. But this moment when Marianne gets up and she's in pain, and Sophie gives her the remedy, the what, 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 what decade was this, right? Eighteenth uh, century, eighteenth century heating pad, right? Yeah. If you will, <laughs> you know, it's that's that's her moment, her character's moment. To so, so while we're on the topic, yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> and then that brings up their excursions into into town. I'll say, I guess, but elsewhere on the island, and it it's the beginning of the, the events that draw the all three of them all much closer together. I really love the portrayal of the equivalent waiting room of the abortion clinic being just as silent as awkward as a modern day waiting room of an abortion clinic. It's just that visual language was so clear. And so like you knew what was happening. And I I think that's something else that was really handled well, the kind of uncomfortability of it and kind of the, the cognitive dissonance of laying back on a bed and then having a kid like barely crawling like in your face holding your little finger as you're having this abortion it just was a really and i really liked kind of the uh, that that's a really traumatic uncomfortable situation and i really like how the three of them kind of cope with it afterwards that they paint it that they they turn it into Mm -hmm. art and they 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 kind of uh assuage that trauma or at least 
express it or recreate it in a way. They draw it out from the person and into the brush and onto the canvas. Mm-hmm. I just love that. Like that, that, that was a really cool move. And it's something like none of us can sleep. We're all like, what a harrowing, traumatic thing they have to do. And then it's like, get your stuff. We're painting. Like, and it, it's it becomes this collaborative act. It's no longer subjects and and painter. It, it's this this community creating this thing. And I think that's just such a cool moment. I I also liked a little bit the. I'll admit, with a, a little bit of, of. Um, Amusement, I guess, the things they tried before yeah. going to the village doctor. All the, just the, again, I, in, in reading about historical medicine, I have come across historical abortion techniques sometimes and seen them just be tried was almost a little bit funny in this, like, oh, oh, they're going to try all the ridiculous things that we laugh about now. And it's neat to see them acted out. But then also, like, oh, like, for them, what else is there? you know, start with the least dangerous and then move on from there. When they portray that in the kitchen and you see her hanging. <laughs> yes, yeah, so she's hanging, hanging like, from the beam while they brew the tea. That, that sequence has such a unique, like, European sense of humor that it's yes. like this, okay, we, we know that she's gotten, she's just hanging. And then when she drops, she falls. it's yes. just like, it's almost slapstick at that point. And, exactly. it's, and it's a tension breaker in a really refreshing way. I, I think that was... There's humor in this film yeah, too. That it felt has... almost Chaplin or Keaton, the way yep. that the scene goes on normally and then it's punctuated with it's a tiny. sudden Yes, exactly. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I don't I, <laughs> I feel like I Even... I've talked a lot. <laughs> Somebody else talk. <laughs> I was gonna jump in with just another thing that ties into the last couple topics, but I think it was just refreshing um to see a movie with with so few men and, and so little male dialogue. Um, you know, same with uh, Little Women, which was I'd seen uh, in theaters oh, before all this wrapped up, another great movie, and it's just one like you don't even think about it, and then you're like three quarters of the way through the movie, like Tim said earlier, right? When you go to the art show and it's just all these guys there, and you're like, oh shit, there haven't been that many guys in this movie. There have, hasn't been dialogue. It's like a flipped uh, Bechdel test, uh, and it and it just feels great, right? Like I mean, it's just it's just a good movie, and that just happens how you know how it happens to play out and it's refreshing to see, I think. It's crazy the moment like when she comes down and the guy is a man at the table. And yeah. it just interrupt like it's like, oh yeah. Like it's this this it's it's interruption, this male interruption. And it's really it's frustrating. Like who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and he stands in, he's like this symbol of like she has to go and get married now. You have to leave. Like you have to re enter this this world that's shitty and male dominated. It just, mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't even think about with the gallery is she's just swimming through this room. That's just chock full of these dudes and powdered mm-hmm. wigs and just having to elbow her way across the room. Like it just. And submit her art under her father's name. Yeah. Of course. Mm-hmm. I like that reveal where he's like, your father's works incredible. Actually it's mine. And then he moves very close, like at well, I guess he, to give him credit, he does talk about like normal. It's a, it's an interesting take. Yeah, it's he seems to like, just keep talking, you get, almost as if she it. hadn't spoken. Well, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like just oh, okay, I'll just finish my sentence. You know, like he doesn't he doesn't comment on it specifically or on her being woman or anything, but he doesn't support it either. 
Sorry, Zeke, I jumped there at the end. I didn't want to. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I just wanted to tee that up. That's, I mean, there are only, does the man at the table speak? He doesn't, does he? I don't think so. Because Sophie speaks, and then Marianne goes back upstairs. I thought, I think he says hi, right? Or good morning or something like that. Well, yeah. it, him or not him, the only other male lines at all are the art critic dealer buyer guy and one of the the sailor's officers right. who drops her off as I love leaving, that moment she when says he drops her. where do i go you know and he says you know that way or whatever he answers her and that's it that's it that's the thing like it, it's definitely telling when you can tell that a movie has been largely devoid of men and then one comes back like that's something i'm not sure that i would necessarily notice the other way where it's like, look at all these dicks. La, 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 yeah. la. It's the end of the dark, Die Hard movie, and all we've seen is Bonnie Bedelia talk for like two seconds. Like, I, I mean, it's, it's really telling. I think that's really interesting. I'm not sure I noticed until the man showed up at the table because right. the whole setting why was this house <laughs> with this basically empty house, and they never leave except with each other to go nowhere. So that's it. So there's no, you know, there's no absence to miss. It's not like they went into a town that was bustling with people and it was all women. Mm-hmm. You know, they went to uh, a shack with the woman performing the abortion, who's gonna be, you know, the old woman of the village, of course, who else would it be? And at one point they went to a bonfire where all the women are hanging out. Because again, that's, you know, the women have all come together to do their thing and it's just of the time. Like it just, it didn't, I didn't question it. I didn't question it at all. Right. If we'd seen more of the, the civilization on the island, Maybe it might have been more conspicuous, but it, it really didn't come up. Sort of in the same way that, I guess I'll, I'll say alien, right? They're all on a spaceship. So you don't <laughs> expect to suddenly see a new face halfway through. Right. And similarly, like, they just kept staying in the house and wandering the, the beach and the fields. So, of course, there was nobody else. Why would there be? <laughs> I love that Alien has been your go-to example for like everything. And it makes me so happy because you make it work every time. <laughs> and every time I'm like, he is teeing this up. I don't know where he's going. It's something and then it works. Too, so it helps, but... No, I, I, I'm not berating you for it. No, I, just I, I know, yeah. Funny. And that's the thing, that the arrival of that man at the table is as sudden as, you know, oh, because we haven't seen anybody, even the sailors who brought Marianne to shore, they did not come to the house. The only people we have seen in the building are mm-hmm. these fallen men. That's it. And not to take us t- too far away to play in a little bit more. Um, after the movie ended, we were flipping around on Hulu just to see what else was on there and uh, came across The Hustle, which is the, the um, Rebel Wilson and Hathaway remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And we're like, okay, let's throw it on for five minutes and see uh, what this 14% on Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> movie is like. And, you know, that's one that's... Uh, uh, you know, we saw that the screenplay is done by four men, you know, a male producer, a uh, male director, and just the women are just, and, and probably, uh, you know, to be fair, by comparison, right, it's like the antithesis of, of Portrait of Lady on Fire, but watching it right after. But the women in that movie are just written so poorly um, that it was just extra jarring to think about, like, the lack of men in, 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 in Portrait, and then you know, see the flip side of that in a, in a whole nother movie. Um, just again, speaking to like uh, how like the, the abortion scenes were handled and how the menstruation scenes were handled, like all those things just, just completely different when handled with a woman, you know, the sexual, the male gaze, all of it. Um, 
yeah, it's just just a weird thing to watch afterward. I wonder how much of that in Hustle comes from the film having originally been male characters and just that the adaptation wasn't, you know, they just figured they'd stick to women in the role and call it a day. That's the thing, to- like that that movie is goofy. Like I, the the original is goofy and not impeccably well written. It, it's carried off because it's Michael Caine and Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's definitely... I would think a product of the billing of those actors and enough of the buy-in is seeing those two worlds collide where I, and I mean, in this age of we're rebooting everything we're, and I think that's one of the failings of Hollywood is like, here's a, here's a male movie that sold well. Let's just make it female and do nothing else. You know, like it's the difference between suicide squad and birds of prey, you know, like, Margot Robbie is an incredible actress and pulled a great character performance out of a poorly done movie and mm-hmm. then headed up a sequel that just, it, it's a totally different sensibility. You definitely can see in that movie that it was penned, produced, directed by a woman because of how the the level of comfort, the idea like, the themes, the idea that like it, it's it it does make a difference. It really does, right? And yeah, and, and again, portrait to to hustle is not apples right. to apples in any way. Right. No, um, I think that's a good like. <laughs> I think there are a lot more movies like Hustle <laughs> than there are exactly like exactly to sort of strike a middle ground. I think Ocean's Eight did that really well. Yeah, for sure. Because it doesn't quite go as what did I say, as all in on its characters being women being the point so much as it it sort of does the hustle thing of let's just find some interesting characters and have them do a, a good heist movie. But it, I don't know, like it, it kind of, it's not quite as callous just that's swap women in for men. No, I, but it's I, think, not I think as, that's a good example of what you're trying to articulate. Yeah, it's not as sure. like focused in on... Yeah on the characters and their femininity as Birds of Prey or as Portrait of a Lady. In the same way, is, I'm trying to remember who directed Bridesmaids. Was that, who is that? Because that's another one that I think is directed by a man, but is like a really good yeah, counterpoint. Paul like, Fee, yeah, Paul Feige. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. But just like the juxtaposition of that versus The Hangover. If you did The Hangover, but just swapped the gender of the characters, what's the quality of that film? What is it doing? Bridesmaid is, is, a, is an incredible movie that has fart and shit jokes in it, but it also is really sensitive to the idea of like what it feels like to have your friends be married off and like how, what your role is. It's just a really like, I will sing the praises of that film to the ends of the earth because I think it's incredible. And it, it's just, it, it's the same kind of, thing that oceans eight is i think that oceans eight took like there's this framework of the oceans world it's full of con Mm -hmm. artists and for the first time we get female con artists running the same kind of games and i i that's that's an incredible film as well i think we're doing really well which is just so classic man to be patting myself on the back (laughs) for (laughs) having a conversation about this but i think like I, I'm I'm proud of us, which should be enough for you. <laughs> I, 
I was thinking about Widows too. Did any of you see that? I yeah, I still really great. want to see it. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm glad you helped me help me here. But I that was that was really good. Yeah. Uh huh. But the and the the characters being women comes up a lot here and there, but it doesn't seem quite as like it's more present than it is in Ocean's Eight, but it's not as consistently present from start to finish as in other films. Does that? Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, yeah, there are certain conversations and certain scenes and certain points where that happens, but then there are other points where it's just the people and their plan. Right. Crime yeah. Plan. yeah. Mm-hmm. That was directed by a man too, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. Uh, I'm forgetting his name. Yeah, Steve McQueen. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. wow. Not the dead Steve McQueen, obviously. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oscar award-winning Steve McQueen. Yes. <laughs> I want to just to get back to the film real quick. I, I had written down some specific quotes and there's, there's a moment in when she, uh, Marianne is talking to um, Eloise's mother and they switch from French to Italian. Yeah. It went right over the fuck of my head. Like there's, there's, there was, I was not processing that the, it, and the signal that she says, you know, Italian, like that's the only <laughs> indication which is a testament to my poor education in both those languages, having taken both those languages. Yeah. It's just a great moment of like, but like just the ease with which she switches and the idea that like she said something that she thinks is just to herself. And then it changes yeah. the dynamic between them to have, be able to communicate in Italian it was just a great moment. But I really love the line I think it's Eloise says it that do all lovers feel like they're inventing something new, which is just like, so beautiful. Like the, the writing of this, the screenwriting alone, if, if it was any poorer in any other category, I think the the script itself would just lift it. There's so many of those it's, it's, and to quote a really cheesy movie, like the thing from um, uh, national treasure was like, people don't talk like that. Yeah, but they they feel like that. They think like that. Like yeah. the it, this just crystallizes those moments so well. Like the that kind of thing. The I I, I just really like that line. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. I was thinking about languages too because I it, it inspired me to. I have seen films in many languages now. Uh, let me see. Weird flex, but okay. Well, I mean. <laughs> Obviously, English and British English and Australian English, French, German, Spanish, Mexican Spanish, if you want to count it, Cuban Spanish, which you definitely need to count. Um, As distinct Jap- enough to have oh, to yeah. <laughs> really Japanese, listen. Um, whatever Stalker was in, was that Ukrainian or Russian? It's Russian. Okay. Shot in Russian, Ukraine. But the language is Russian. Okay, Russian. right. And, and a bunch. I mean, I've seen a lot of different languages. But German and French, for some reason, are the two that I'm always excited about. Hmm. And I think partly because French especially just resonates with me. I've, I've mentioned who knows how many episodes ago that when I was taking that class at university in Spain about European cinema, and we were working through country by country, that I expected to like German cinema and I did, but that I did not expect to like French cinema nearly as much as I did. And the more I've watched in both those languages, the more the languages themselves have just blossomed like flowers there's a versatility to them that just reaches me somehow. And that, that moment when they switched into Italian was what did it. Because 
I was already thinking, man, I'm really loving this film. I wish I could understand it more innately than just subtitles. And then when they got to Italian and Marianne said, see, si, which is also yes in Spanish, that just, my wires crossed and I short circuited <laughs> for a second. It was like, what? It, is this in French? And then the conversation kept going. I was like, oh, That's and it, great. It, it lost something. Maybe because it's a second language for both characters and the way the scene was staged. But that was the moment that I had to pause the film and go, wow, I really like French. <laughs> and then I sat and thought about it for a while. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just looking through my notes here. I don't want to no, drag no. drag us out any further I'm, than we. I'll take mine too while you're to. doing that. Um, I'm glad you called the image of Eloise in white. Uh, did you call it a ghost? Because yeah, I have an apparition written here. Yeah, it's and definitely just, eerie and and spooky. There's this vision, this spirit, this ethereal. Seriously, she has got to direct a a Shirley adaptation or or a uh, Jane Eyre like. Just to capture the gothic tone in a way that does not feel so recycled and so done over and over and over again. This just, for a film set, a period piece, to be so modern and so intimate and so immediate, it just, it, it has this tension and it, you, you're, you've bought into it. And I mean, I don't, have to bore you guys anymore with my love of Bronte's literature, but like those stories have this element to it. And somebody who could really put that on screen, like mm-hmm. it would be a match made in heaven. I, I, I'm desperate. Like I almost like tried to find her Twitter and was like out of the theater. Like, please have you read this? You would be perfect for this. I don't know what I can do to pr- convince you to do this thing. Cause it, it just, it would work so well. The idea of this, the duality of, do you know, tell us a little bit about Shirley? So I'm not familiar. And I assume we have some listeners who are. So. <laughs> How much time? That's a whole nother podcast. Like <laughs> Shirley is essentially, I always describe if, if Jane Eyre is the engine that's all together, Shirley is the exploded view on the schematic where you can see all where all of the nuts and bolts and all pistons and all that stuff where it's supposed to go but it's blown up the scope is wider it's it's dual protagonists it's dual um narrated so you have a third person omniscient and then you have journal entries and it's about the interactions between this kind of well, it's very similar thematically to this. Same kind of character dynamics. You have a wealthy landowning uh, female heir named Shirley. And at the time, Shirley was meant, was also a male name. So there's this kind of duality of gender. And she really fills this role of kind of being the landowning gentleman. And then she finds this companion in uh, Caroline who is poorer and more like kind of i think she's a parson's daughter um and there's just this dynamic between them and it's it's a lot about um this kind of mythic image that shirley has of um eve being mother earth rather than subservient to and um, derived from adam and this idea of this uh 
Adam polluting the garden and for it's a very pest. I'm trying not to get too heady into my, yeah. my thesis about it, but it, it, it's, it's about these two women and kind of the industrial revolution in England and kind of how these farmers with this, the, the land ownership is being kind of shifted as industry is taking over and the money is going South rather than North and it, it's how this landscape is shifting and kind of disappearing from a pasture into mechanization and industrialization. Yeah. And it's how these women in this unique position kind of go through that. And it, it's a lot about resisting marriage and this idea of like, and that's Bronte, like just these are the roles for women. That's unacceptable. Why are these the only three that we can be a crone and die? We can be a whore and be burned and, or we can, be married and pump out units like that. That's, that's the frustration. And I'm uh, uh, quoting George Carlin there, just like, and it it deals with those same themes and it it would just be a very specific tone that this film has. So sorry that what were we at? That was like 15 minutes. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that was good. It was excellent. Yeah, so really quick before we get into my favorite segment, because I think it's about that time. Um, what if I if I can af- ask a leading question? What what would the next film from this director that you'd like to see? What what would you like to see her interpret? Because I guess that's what I just did. Like I, I really like this period of aesthetic. She's done very modern things. I think all the the other three films that I mentioned um, are all like modern day. 2007, 2011, 2014. Um. Ooh, uh, The Great Gatsby. I want okay. a quiet Gatsby without all Ooh. the raging noise that everybody thinks about now. Where the whole film, because the whole book is communicated in the thoughts of our main character, mostly. And Interesting. I think that would, her ability to bring out emotion and thought visually between in the space between two people is would just be brilliant for that i'd be really interested to see how she deals with the with fitzgerald (laughs) yeah with the tyrannical nature of the men in that book yeah i think that would be a really interesting i yeah i think the setting offers a lot of rich time and place for her too for sure Mm -hmm. having just seen i i just i think the second to last thing i saw in the theater was they did um oh baz lerman's uh great gatsby they they did a showing at alamo and that is such a noisy film so it would yeah. be a great kind of like counter to that yeah that's great i like that i i can sidestep a little too if you all need more time um but uh i mentioned brideshead revisited before and that is is long i mean it's only been properly approached in a miniseries, really. The films just aren't long enough. But I'm struggling because I, I, I like the interpretations that focus more on the relationships between the two main male characters and how that develops over time. But the ultimate point of the book is more about religion. Uh, so the other characters, the whole ensemble, can't go. You know, they would have to stay. Gotcha. Um, and I, I don't know if... I'm maybe just asking for a complete rewrite of those characters <laughs> into a different story. Um, but, but again, that's another, and that takes place all in the United Kingdom almost entirely, but also in between the two world wars, 
but at a time and place that is so visually and artistically different from Gatsby, which is also in Drill War, mm-hmm. that the two sort of stand opposed, opposed to, diametrically opposed visually in a way that I think would be really neat. Tim, what about you? Um, what popped into my head, and at first I was kind of like, oh, why that? But the more I think about it, um, if she did sort of a, a, a telling of the fountainhead, but with a female protagonist, I think it would be really, really cool to, to switch the gender there. Because um, I feel like, I mean, for me personally, I like that story because it's about, you know, you know this, this guy trying to, to hold to his artistic integrity through a world that's trying to make him more commercial. But I feel like no, no, nobody cares anymore about, you know, a guy trying to make his way in the world. So, I mean, I feel like it would be a much more poignant story if it was from the perspective of, you know, of a woman who's, who's trying to kind of find her footing, you know, in, in this man's world and kind of keep to, to her ideals. Um, and I mean, you, you probably wouldn't have to change much. You could still make her an architect, you know, and it, I feel like it would still be, uh, you know, a similar journey. Um, and I, yeah, I never would have thought of that until you mentioned that. And I'm trying to, okay, well, you know, what story would fit into this. Um, plus part of the fountainhead that's always been troubling is sort of, there's this, this weird rape scene in it, you know, and, and it's, I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, well, what if we, you know, instead of telling the story, the way it's told, what if we fix that as part of the adaptation, you know, and, and either like take it out or kind of, you know, and, and also if you're kind of looking at it from the perspective of the female main character, you know, maybe it'd be easier to retell it because I, I almost wonder if part of the issue with it is like, you know, if 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 you try to portray it a different way in the movie adaptation, well, then are you just kind of justifying it? Mm-hmm. Are you, you know, and it's like, um, and I remember, um, I remember, I feel like I kind of missed it when I read it until people kind of talked about it. And then I think I like went back and like read that part of it. And I think there's, there's an old film version of The Fountainhead and I watched that scene and I was like, oh, okay. And I think part of what makes it weird and troubling is like, I think he, like the, the woman does kind of stay with him and she's kind of like his, his kind of counterpart through it. But the way that happens is still very rapey. So it's kind of like, uh, okay, like what, what are you trying to say here? And it's, and again, it's kind of like with, you know, like how we kind of had to talk about it with like um, uh, a Blade Runner, you know, it's like, okay, like we can't kind of, excuse this we can kind of think about how it might be okay or what they're trying to say with it but it's still kind of not okay you know and it's like i feel like if you were going to rewrite the story enough that you're making the protagonist female you might as well deal with that scene and rewrite that so that you know you're not instead of i guess trying to figure out what ayn rand was originally saying like what her point was be like well let's let's make it a different point let's like let's, let's update this scene and either make it just a straight up sex scene or or nothing but like like why that kind of comes into play i think a lot of people are always just kind of like speculating about and it's like you know i feel like there's so much good story in the rest of that book like it, it gets ruined by that one scene you know and and especially because like i said i think i guess it'd be one it'd be one thing if there was like a clear motivation like 
you know, are, are you really trying to tear down your main character by being like, oh, he's trying to stick to his guns about integrity, but he's a rapist. Like, wh- what's your point? <laughs> you know, like, so as a way of just completely giving that whole thing an overhaul, I think it might, you might be able to enjoy the rest of the story without having to quote unquote, put up with the rape, you know, like, so I think that would be a way to kind of salvage that, but without salvaging Ayn Rand's version where, well, if we're doing her version, we still have to put the rape in there, you know, for some reason, you know, um, yeah, because I feel like if you take if you just take it out, then it's like you know you're just kind of, I guess, hiding it. You know, the fact that it was there originally. So, so yeah, I don't know. It's it, you know, and it's it, it's it's a weird sort of thing, and it's kind of like, kind of messed up my memory of the story because when I read it, like I don't know if I either just glossed over that. I and honestly, I think I read the abridged version. That could have been part of why <laughs> you know it didn't kind of stand out as much to me. Maybe they just cut that scene out in, in, in altogether, or maybe it was written differently. But like, I just remember for me focusing on like, yeah, this is kind of what I'm going through. Like, the world is saying you should do this with your talents, and everyone's trying to say this is what needs to be done if you want to be successful. And I, you know, trying to he's trying to stick to his guns, and you know, and, you know, the ownership of his own artistic vision of thing, you know, and and then it's like, oh wait, yeah, that's right. So now I'm not supposed to idolize this guy anymore. Like, okay, is this whole book garbage? Is there a way to kind of salvage the good parts of the story? So anyway, I think that would be a good way to be able to pick and choose from that different perspective, you know, and, and, you know, and again, you know, having a female director deal with how to handle that as opposed to a male director, it's like, oh no, it'll just be fine, you know, or, or whatever might be dealt with, you know, like to get to the core of the problem and maybe have a different perspective on why it might have been there in the first place. And I mean, you know, and that's what makes it weird too. Like the, the, the author was female. So what, you know, it's not like, a man saying like, this is how women want sex to be done to them. It was like, why would you put this in your book and make your hero do something like this? You know? And so, so again, I think at least if you had a woman's reinterpretation of it or, or just complete rewriting of it, I think, like I said, it could, it could save what, what the good parts of the story are, you know? <laughs> so that's my, that's my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got Zeke? Um, I don't want to be too much of a bummer with a, a non-answer, but I don't know that I have a good one coming to mind. I, you know, I don't know that I'm as well versed in like classic literature to think of another period piece I'd like to see. And I think I'd like to see some of her more uh, modern stuff before thinking of a specific thing there. Um, that being said, I mean, I'd love to see her do, uh, you know, something like a rom-com, but at the same time, this one was almost like, I mean, it was a romance, obviously, with some comedic elements. Um, so I don't know, it might be fun to see her do something that's a little bit more on the calm side of the rom-com equation. Um, I think that could be really well done. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think this was a, a good romantic thing with romantic movie with comedy elements anyway. So yeah, I don't know. I think I'd have to think a little bit longer, dig in a little bit more to her uh, work for a specific one. Mm-hmm. As I had asked the question, I kept thinking of the SNL sketch where it's the, um, uh, what's that name? And Mulaney's on. And <laughs> Bill Hader is just yeah. berating him as the host. And he's like, yeah. what, would you, what would your message or advice be to the young women of America? And then there's... Assume it. <laughs> no, and he's like, I don't know. You can do anything. How is that wrong? <laughs> what would you say? I wouldn't say anything. I'd listen. <laughs> so like the, the, the answer would be whatever the fuck she wants to make next. There, is what there you go. <laughs> but, 
that's my new answer. <laughs> Although having said that, I also would like to see her do straight up horror. You know, yes. Because of how we talked yeah, about like right. how spooky mm-hmm. so much of it was like, like yeah. you know, if there's a part of her who's like, I want to do horror, but I'm going to tell this story. This is the project I'm working on, but let me try to like sneak some little spooky things in, you know, like, like, yeah. And like we were talking about the whole scene with like, with all the women around the fire, like that had like a midsummer vibe to it, you know, where it was like, Oh shit, someone's going to die right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like we're going to, we're going to eat someone right now, aren't we? (laughs) All right. So we should move on to my favorite segment. I'm going to put it right here. It is, it is time for another <laughs> situational movie recommendation. Um, so I did have one kind of themed on the movie. Um, what would be, it doesn't have to be uh, necessarily a movie that you like, but I'm specifically talking about what is a favorite scene of yours involving fire? Um, and the one that I had in mind was the scene in There Will Be Blood where the rig catches on fire and it's just spouting these black puffs into the sky and this flame and this red rising sun. It's just like incredible sequence. And the way the, the music at that moment is just like chugging, chugging. Like it, it's just this really... Uh, it, it, I, I don't know. It's it's this this glorious effigy burned in in the name of the the rape of the natural world that that he's doing at this point. It's just a gorgeous, terrifying sequence that I I really like. That's the one that came to mind. And in in a rare in rare form, I'll I'll keep it to just one, um, <laughs> unless we need more time and I can vamp. <laughs> I just cheated and used Google. <laughs> Google. Um, I just Googled up, I, I, uh, you know, movie scenes with fire. Um, and this one's fresh in my mind, so I'll go with that too. But uh, 1917, um, the scene where the city's on fire and, wow. you know, he's running through and there's flares and um, such a yeah, great sequence. it's at nighttime, right? So uh, I'll go with that one. Yeah, I can't think, can't think of anything else. Google suggested Bambi. I don't know if I want to go with that. I'll stick with 1917. Um, I, I have two answers. I have a funny one and then a, a more serious one. So the funny one is uh, is Ghost Rider because I enjoyed watching um, Nick Cage's face burn and melt off. That was that was great. <laughs> I like it. Um, but uh, but my serious answer is actually like yeah. Um, you know, the other day, my wife and I watched um, uh, um, uh, Revenge of the Sith. and Oh, just and, Anakin you know, burning to death? Yeah, yeah. The oh, immolation well, scene. Well, because, and this is the thing, too, is, like, I feel like, you know, uh, number one, and I've talked about this before, of why I like watching them in numerical order, because I feel like they just gradually get better as you go along, you know, Um and and kind of that that being like this this long awaited climax of of the three prequels and and you know we've seen it enough times now where we can kind of just be you know we were kind of doing commentary all the way through kind of like making jokes about stuff here and there and and it kind of gets to that point and it's like and, and even though like i mean we we've seen it enough times like i still remember you know like even my wife like that it's just like oh gross like it's just it's so nasty like it it, it holds nothing back you know like 
And I feel like that's the, the, the most serious part of all three of the, the, the prequels where it's like, you know, you can kind of like, even at the beginning, like they're still kind of being lighthearted and chummy and, you know, there's, you know, and you just get to that point and just like, like how red and teared up his eyes are. And like, you know, you, you can just like see all like every second of the torture and just like what he's feeling. It's just like, Oh man, like, like, and I don't, you know, and you almost wonder too, like, was that something actually a friend of mine had told, like, told me that like he read something where George Lucas was constantly telling Hayden Christensen to be more robotic as a foreshadow of, of him becoming Darth Vader. But it's like, I almost wonder, like, was his whole point being like, save it, save it for this one scene, like all of the acting <laughs> that you've done for the rest of these two movies, this one scene is going to be more acting than you've done the rest of the time. And it was just like, like, yeah, there were, there were no jokes to be made. It was just like, this, this is fucked up. <laughs> the, the promise of the prequels of showing us how Anakin became Darth Vader was fulfilled in that moment. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, yeah, it's almost like everything leading up to that point, I didn't believe him being Darth Vader. You know, it was just like, yeah, sure. He's a creepy kind of stalker kind of like, <laughs> you know, you know, Oh, Hey, like I hate sand. It gets every, you know, and it's like, but in that moment, like if that was all it was, was, you know, that scene, it'd be like, yeah, Darth Vader got it, <laughs> you know, like, and it almost, it almost needed to, in order to kind of like almost make up for some of the other stuff, you know, and even, you know, and even like, you know, like I said, even at the beginning of that film, like they're still so, so chummy. You know, it, it's not like they were already kind of, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure you could, I, I haven't seen all of Clone Wars yet. So I don't know if there are more cracks that form between him and Obi-Wan's relationship um, before that point. But I just remember watching, like when we started watching episode three and it was like, yeah, they're still friends, you know, and there's that one part where they kind of split off and it's just like, oh, master, may the force be with you, you know? And it's like, you're still like, yeah, they're, 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 they're still friends. Like there isn't, there isn't you know, quote unquote, there isn't a hint of what's to come. I mean, you know, what's to come, but, um, but yeah, it was just like, it was, it was almost as if like it was directed by someone else, you know, like it was almost <laughs> like it was directed by Blumhouse, you know, where it's right. just like, Hey, come in and make us make the grossest scene that you can right now. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Fire. <laughs> Scott, what about you? I really, I, I don't know. I mean, this is the first one that I feel like legitimately ambushed about in terms of <laughs> I think I have to just go rewatch everything on my shelf and I'm going to come back with my answer in six years. Um, but narrowing in on my instinct is television, actually avatar, the last airbender, the final duel between Zuko and Azula, the brother and sister, because their fire is so much bigger because of the comet. But when we cut back to them, instead of the dramatic action music we get during the big climax with the avatar and everybody, we get this sad, beautiful violin and the flame is just arcing up in great waves off into the sky and the sound of the, the oxygen, you know, crackling away. And it's so beautiful and somber, even though it's two siblings trying to kill each other in the most horrible way possible. Uh, and I've always loved that contrast. But to, to pick a film to meet the criteria of this podcast, the first thing that comes to mind is Letters from Iwo Jima. Um, which is about the Battle of Iwo Jima, but it follows a Japanese soldier. And they spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of time not seeing any Americans. I think there are a couple shots of Americans getting shot up on the beaches at some point, but basically they're, we don't see them at all. You know, they're just dots in the distance. There are ships that show them, et cetera. And the, 
um, our main character and the one other guy from his original posting who are still alive are walking through the network of underground tunnels, which connected basically the entire island um, and was why Marines would find themselves getting shot in the back sometimes when they passed positions they had already quote unquote cleared. <laughs> um, and they, we still haven't seen any American soldiers up close. And the two main characters come across a couple of other characters and they're all kind of not sure because there was that extreme, you know, you should die rather than retreat in the Japanese military at the time. So they're not sure if one of them is going to try to kill the other one or, or you know, we're all just going to pretend we were definitely ordered to fall back and strengthen our positions. Uh, and just as they're finally starting to relax, they hear a noise and maybe it's more other guys. And one of the other soldiers walks over to the short ladder with a hatch at the top. And as soon as he looks up, Whoosh, a jet of fire from a flamethrower just bursts down into the, the thing and just boom, lights him up and screaming and light and they're blinded by the sudden flash of the fire. And it's horrible and vivid and shocking and gross. But it also means there are people, Americans, on the other side of that hatch, right there, like feet away for the first time in the entire film. And it's horrifying in a way that horror movies just can't manage. Uh, and you actually don't end up seeing them. Every, the, the, the three survivors run uh, intelligently, I would say. They, they run down another tunnel, and you never even see the Americans that shot the fire through the hatch. But just that looming threat of another human on the other side of the hatch, prevented by the fire, is such a sudden visual moment that you know, the natural light of the fire really emphasizes. So, yeah. Awesome. So I see by the lack of light in Tim's room that we should probably wrap this up. I've just wa been watching the light slowly die in your webcam. You don't want me to stand up to turn the light on. <laughs> Great. Uh, maybe we do, Tim. <laughs> that was great, guys. Thank you for watching this. I, I, I think this format worked pretty well. I, I'm, I'm, pretty happy with the yeah. conversation that we were able to have and being able to watch something that we all could watch. I think this is pretty viable. I don't know how you guys thought it went. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'd like to get back in person as soon as possible, Absolutely. but this is going well. Yeah. Mainly for the pizza and camaraderie more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Joel just wanted to not have to pay for pizza. So he's like, no, we'll do it remotely. <laughs> and then, oh, next time it's Scott. Okay, we'll do it in person. Scott, pizza. <laughs> We're going to do, we should do at least a quarantine cycle. Like, yeah. So everybody can yeah. not have bought pizza for a full term. Yeah. Or, or, or the other way we could be dicks is if we did like, you know, you, Scott, and then me, and then Zeke has to, we were in person. It's like, you bought pizza last time and you're buying pizza again. This New guy. <laughs> I don't like that idea. I don't like it. <laughs> Oh, I miss you guys. <laughs> I miss pizza. Oh, and you guys too. <laughs> I miss video games. So Scott is our picker next month. Yes, and uh, thanks, praise be to Netflix, I can still bring you <laughs> what I originally intended to bring, which is The Invitation, a uh, horror thriller. I want to. I would call it horror. Um, about a, so our main character, whose name I've completely forgotten already, <laughs> uh, Will, I think, is um, something happened, we don't know what, and he has an ex-wife and they split up. Will and his new, I'd say girlfriend, are now headed back 
for the first time in two years to the house he used to live in with his wife, where she is hosting a big dinner party for all their old friends. And Will, it's all kind of, everything is okay now and everyone gets together. And Will is not comfortable for a multitude of reasons, which I can't spoil now. But he begins to think that something else is going on, something more than just, you know, hey, we all going through a lot and now let's all come back together and see our friends again. And so the entire film balances suspicion and paranoia over is he right to suspect something or is he just being crazy and slowly losing his mind? And the film balances it on that knife edge so well, almost right up until the moment where the, the film climaxes and everything breaks open that I, I really love it. And uh, I'm really eager to show it to all of you. It also shares a, a few similarities with us. It came out before us in that, um, A, it's our two main characters driving to a house and then spending the entire time in the house um, in uncomfortable situations. And then B, on the way to the house, they hit an animal in the street. And I remember I saw the invitation. You mean like, get out? I'm sorry, get out. Yes, thank you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, get out. I definitely, definitely Very get different out. films, um, but I get, got what God, and... <laughs> And I saw The Invitation a couple months before Get Out came out. And my first thought was, oh, now when I show everybody The Invitation, the first thing they're going to do is see them hit the animal and say, oh, just like Get Out. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> but uh, but I, I think you'll like it anyway. It's a really just really taut film that lies on the strength of its, its uh, in total package construction, the sets and the filming and the characters. And I don't know if it got a wide theater release, but it deserved it. Who directed it? Yeah, let me see. Um, Karen Kusama. Okay, I'm not familiar with any of their work. I don't think I'm familiar with any of her other work either, actually, despite loving the invitation. So let's see. Okay, Jennifer's Body. <laughs> I saw that. Okay, interesting. <laughs> uh, speechless the invitation. Bit of um, a de departure. Aeon <laughs> Flux. Actually, Jennifer Bo Jennifer's body is supposed to be pretty good. Yeah, it is. It's it's yeah, it's a little, little bit traditional horror with a twist, um, and then a lot of television. So probably cool. explains why I haven't seen much of it. So there you go. Looking forward to it. Another horror one. Yeah, I'm Very excited. excited. <laughs> so, awesome. Thank you, Joel, so much for bringing us Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is just wonderful, and. Uh, Thank you, Tim and Zeke, for joining us, as always. Thank you all for enduring the, the Zoom situation. Uh, and Thank so you all for enduring my naked shoulders. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> and thank you, Joel, for making this sound good, despite the Zoom situation. Yeah, this, this, yes. this one should be pretty good. We, the, the quality of the, the previous one will be pretty good. We have a little boominess from Zeke's mic the last time, but that it's fine now. It's because he's got the best voice of all of us. It's deep and authoritative <laughs> cool thanks so yeah and thank you <laughs> listeners for joining us for sticking it out through your first or second zoom episode depending <laughs> we hope you'll come back for a third because <laughs> the world is ending until then stay safe <laughs> good night bye bye au revoir <laughs> Very nice. Fucking Zeke. <laughs> we got a theme this, is, shit. <laughs> this is why he's on the podcast, because he's charming <laughs> and a delight. Hey, listeners, we appreciate you tuning in for our podcast. We're now available on iTunes if you'd like to check us out there. Be glad to have you subscribe. We'd also love to hear your feedback, whether it's a comment, review, or anything else. 
You can reach us all through our official Nerds That Geek emails, which you can find on the bio page at nerdsthatgeek.com. If you want to find us on social media, I'm on Instagram at Scott underscore W underscore Murray, or on Twitter at Scott MNTG. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Joel T18. And I'm on Twitter at Nerds That Zeke. And on Instagram, I'm the Tim Gerard. And on Twitter, I'm at Tim Gerard. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you'll come back for more. Thank you.